Episode 17 of By Our Own Hands Shortly after I arrived at the castle, Mrs. Adair summoned me to her private drawing-room. I was apprehensive, but I could not refuse. I joined her and found that she simply wanted to speak to me. She was very pleasant, and we sat for a couple of hours working on needlework. I was even able to advise her on her stitching. She was graceful and didn't hold my mother's sins against me. We continued meeting occasionally for needlework and knitting over the span of the next year. Mr. and Mrs. Adair frequently took holidays together, so there were many times when all Mother and I had to do was sit and wait for their return. I loved those times because Mother would pass the time retelling my father's tales. She would even bake in the kitchen, much to the chagrin of the castle cook. She and I sat for hours working on quilts or knitting gloves and scarves. I found myself looking forward to the many holidays of Mr. and Mrs. Adair. When they left for an Easter holiday trip, many months after our arrival, I found that Mother was not her usual self. She did not invite me to join her for needlework. She ate her meals alone in her room. We had not been very close while I was a small child, and subsequently, Mother had always been somewhat mysterious. Her presence was always fleeting. I had not known her as well as other children know their mothers. In the previous months, I had found myself growing closer to Mother. We were finally discovering each other. Her sudden unwillingness to engage with me, despite the fact that the Adairs were gone, was perplexing and hurtful. I could not guess what had caused her sudden change or decide how best to approach her. Instead of confronting her, I waited for her to call me to her. I waited for the entire length of the holiday. When the Adairs returned, I waited in the halls to catch a glimpse of her. When I finally saw her, she did not speak. Her face was deathly pale. It was etched with concern. She looked at me with regret and even a touch of compassion. She didn't say a word as she quietly entered the library room. Ten minutes later, I was walking through the main hall, and I saw her leave the library room through the main door. She ran out of the room with tears streaming down her face and a handkerchief held to her mouth. I ran after her. I followed her all the way to her room. She closed the door firmly. I waited outside her door. I put my mouth to the door and spoke softly. Mother, please let me inside. I want to help you, I said. I pressed my ear to the door. I heard nothing. I waited for a few minutes. I put my mouth to the door again and spoke once more. Mother, I am going to get us some tea. I will return shortly. Then we will talk, I said. I went to the kitchen. For once, it was empty. I quickly made tea and was soon at Mother's door. I knocked softly. Mother, I am going to open the door now, I said. I stood back after I spoke those words. I heard Mother. She opened the door. She did not speak. Her eyes were wide and fearful. 
I wondered for a moment if I had been wise to insist on seeing her. She stepped back and allowed me to enter her room. I looked about and saw that she had opened a large chest and had begun packing her things. I walked to her dressing table and placed the tea tray on the table. I saw the handkerchief on the table. It was stained with blood. I turned around. I felt my fury building by the second. Mother, did he hurt you? I asked. I could feel my temples beginning to pulse. You cannot let him. I won't let him, I added. Mother's frightened eyes softened and took on a resigned look. Then she smiled. My dear Aoife, you are a treasure, she said. She opened her arms. I walked to her and embraced her. I pulled away slowly and looked at her questionably. I stared at her lips and her nose. Neither were bloody or cut. Her face was not reddened from a strong slap. Aoife, Mr. Adair would like for us to leave, she said calmly. I pulled away even further. I sat down and put my hand in hers, pulling her down onto the bed and forcing her to sit with me. Mother, tell me what happened, I said. Mother sighed. She was quiet for several moments. I was sitting with John and I was overcome with a coughing fit. I put my handkerchief to my mouth and when I pulled it away, it was stained with blood. John was very distraught. I told him that I had felt the dread upon me for months. I had known, but I had been unwilling to tell a soul, she said. I had known that her illnesses had become more frequent. I had seen her face become paler and thinner, but I had refused to allow myself to think of this possibility. Consumption was a death sentence, especially in Ireland where the chill and damp are never far away. John, Mr. Adair, told me to return to the Glebe house, she said. I squeezed her hand. We sat there and drank tea for the next few hours. She spoke of her childhood. She told me how she had met my father and how she had felt when she lost him. She spoke of life and death. She began her last testimony. Within a week, we had returned to the Glebe house. I was sent back to be her nurse. She was sent back to die. She lived for many years, and I did not return to the castle until mother was gone. I returned even though it broke Mrs. O'Donnell's heart. That is when I began to watch him. I saw him watching me. I heard his words, words he had spoken before long ago. Once I heard those words, I could not fool myself. That is when I started down a path, a path from which I could not return. Old Man Seamus has arrived. I answered the door wearing my coat. He gives me a warm smile. Aoife, good day, he says. Good day, Seamus, I say. We go to the covered cart, which the castle folk prefer to call the small carriage. The rain has become a light drizzle. Old Man Seamus helps me into the carriage. He is still swift and agile despite his age. We are soon on the road heading towards the castle. I cannot help but feel anxious as I return. I felt anxious on the day I returned shortly after Mother's death, too. 
Mr. Adair had greeted me personally and welcomed me to his home. I had smiled faintly. This had pleased him. I was shown to my room by Peg McSweeney. She helped me with my bag. I was given the same room Mother had used when she had lived at the castle. I knew what role he expected me to play. Mother's role. I unpacked my things. I wondered if I would receive a new pair of shoes. I waited expectantly. On the third day, I returned to my room to find something else waiting for me. On my bed, the one that Mother had used, was a small wolfhound pup. She was the same color as her. She resembled her so much. If I hadn't known better, I would have believed that she was one of Sally's pups. We have reached the castle. Old Man Seamus helps me from the carriage. He pulls away to park. I walk to the side door, and Nathaniel Foxlow himself opens it. I have to smile at this. I am not sure if he has done this because of all the times I have answered the door at the Glebe house, or if he is ignoring social protocol again. He surprises me and steps out of the door with an umbrella in each hand. Good day, Aoife, he says with a broad smile while handing me an umbrella. Good day, Dr. Foxlow, I say. Come with me, please, he says. I follow him through a side gate and enter the garden. I can see immediately why he is so taken with it. Mrs. Adair has done a fine job. There are rows of trees, planted flowers, stone fountains, and even a freshly built gardener's cottage. I can see that more work is planned because the sides have not been finished. It is beautiful. Is Mrs. Adair going to expand it even further, I ask? Yes, her plans include a smaller walled garden and a fanciful pleasure garden, he says. I am sure it'll be grand, I say. He nods in agreement and motions for me to follow. I can only follow so closely because his umbrella is very large. He turns to look at me a couple of times and finally starts to laugh. Why haven't you opened your umbrella, he asks. I am quite accustomed to walking in the rain, and this is little more than a few drops, I say. He closes his umbrella and waits for me. I reach him and we begin to walk together. It really is little more than a few drops. It has almost stopped raining. We walk through the garden and towards Lauve. Thank you for showing me the gardens, I say. It was my pleasure, he says. We walk to a view of the lake and stop to admire it. It is the best spot on the estate for admiring the lake. I can see a mist of rain dancing lightly on the lake. I turn to him. I used to take Sally to this very spot, I say. Who is Sally, he asks. I smile at the thought of her, and then I tell him more of my tale. The morning after Sean's accident, another shot was fired, but no one heard that shot. It was silenced, and so was the man who fired the shot. I did not learn of it until after my morning meal. Even though Mrs. O'Donnell had warned me to keep myself hidden, I was still determined to find Mr. Adair and plead with him. I was desperate to care for the dog that had not died from Mr. Adair's foolishness. 
I wanted to make certain that she was safe. I walked around the estate of the great house until I spotted Mr. Adair. He was leaving the stables and leading one of his favorite horses towards the front of the house. He saw me and gave me a faint smile. He was clearly preoccupied and even surprised to see me. I took a deep breath and began to speak quickly. Mr. Adair, sir, can I please take care of your dog? I want to make sure that she is safe and well cared for. Please, sir, I blurted out. I wondered if I was wise to have said safe and well cared for, but it was too late. I couldn't retract my words. I hoped that he wasn't going to be offended at my choice of words. I might as well have said, I want to make sure you do not do something foolish to harm her. Instead, he looked at me with gratitude. Yes, she should be kept safe in case one of those ribbon men try to poison her. Please take care of her. I will provide you with whatever you need, he said. Thank you, sir, I said. He turned away from me. I took a deep breath and tried my luck again. Sir, what is her name? I asked. He turned and looked at me with surprise. She does not have one. You will have to give her one, he said. I had already thought of one. May I please call her Fail Innes? I asked. He frowned and shook his head. Please choose another name. Tell your mother what you decide to name her, he said. He turned again and walked towards the front of the house with his horse. I ran inside the house and found Mother. She was in the kitchen with Mrs. O'Donnell. I told them excitedly that I was to care for Mr. Adair's surviving dog. Mr. Adair said that I could name her, but when I told him what I wished to name her, he told me to choose another name, I said. What do you wish to name her? Mrs. O'Donnell asked. Fail, Innes, I said. Mrs. O'Donnell smiled and nodded her head in approval. Excellent choice, but I am afraid our master will not agree, she said. Fail Innes was the legendary magical hound of Lou of the Tua de Danon, those that ruled the other world of Tek Duan and the fairy folk. Some prefer another variation of Fail Innes, Selinus. This is especially the case in Leinster, Mother said. Mrs. O'Donnell and I both turned to her. We watched as she took a sip of tea. He cannot object to Sally, she added, with a tired, faint smile. Yes, Sally it is, I said. I left the kitchen to search for Sally. I hoped that she wasn't with one of the Scots. As if she sensed my yearning, she wandered down the hall and found me. I scratched the top of her head. She wore a collar and a leash, which dragged behind her. I shook my head. Whomever had been walking her had not even bothered to remove her leash. I walked past the drawing room and stopped outside the door. It was partially open. I heard loud voices. One was a voice I had heard before, but only once or twice. I tried to recall. Finally, I remembered. It was the sheriff's voice. I rubbed Sally's head again and put my finger to my lips. She must have understood because she sat at my feet and did not make a sound. I stepped closer to the door and listened. 
We need to start an investigation immediately. Can we use your residence? The sheriff asked. Of course, Mr. Adair said in a loud voice. I know this must be quite shocking for you. We have never before had a murder in these parts, at least not that I am aware of, and I have been the sheriff for more than twenty years, the sheriff added. Was he shot? Mr. Adair asked. I stepped even closer to the door. No, Mr. Murray was hit over the head with a large rock. We believe that it happened early this morning. He was overcome by three assailants near Mount Aragal. We found three sets of footprints leading to the scene. It is an open area and quite remote. He must have seen his assailants approaching because there are no trees to use for cover. He never left his home unarmed. Why didn't he take a shot, Mr. Adair said. The sheriff cleared his throat. He did. His gun jammed, he said. I am beset on all sides. They have poisoned my dog. They set my outhouse on fire. Now they have killed my steward, Mr. Adair said hotly. Who are they? the sheriff asked. The ribbon men, and the people of this land hide them and assist them. Now they are protecting a murderer, Mr. Adair shouted. I was stunned. No one had poisoned Sally's sister. The silly McDermott sisters had set the outhouse on fire. I ran to the kitchen with Sally. I entered the kitchen breathless and panting. I was trembling, too. I startled Mrs. O'Donnell and Mother. Mother walked to me and began stroking my arms as if trying to bring warmth back to them. I looked from Mother to Mrs. O'Donnell. Mr. Murray was murdered, I said. Hush, don't say such things, Aoife, Mother said. It's true, I just heard the sheriff tell Mr. Adair, I blurted out. Mrs. O'Donnell and Mother exchanged troubled looks. Mr. Adair said that it was the ribbon men, I said. We have no ribbon men in these parts. He knows very well we don't, Mrs. O'Donnell said. Why would a gun jam? I asked. Mother shook her head at Mrs. O'Donnell, but Mrs. O'Donnell did not notice because she had looked away. When she returned her attention to us, I could see that she had lost some of her color. That is very inconvenient for James Murray and very convenient for his killer, Mrs. O'Donnell said after some hesitation. Did someone do something to his gun so that it would not work, I asked. Hush, Aoife, be careful what you say, Mother said. Yes, be very careful, Mrs. O'Donnell said, her voice trailing off. The next day, the investigation began in earnest. The sheriff brought the lawmen from miles away. They gathered in the spacious drawing room. The door was kept wide open. It was easy to hear what was said. Soon, witnesses began to come forward. Their versions differed greatly. The first to come forward arrived on the very morning that the investigation began. He was a man named William Deary. He had recently joined the Scots to assist Mr. Adair. He had not lived on the estate for more than a month. I sat outside of the drawing room on the floor with Sally. 
My presence was not even noticed. Children were considered so insignificant that we could be invisible in plain sight, provided we remained quiet. Sally seemed to understand the situation, and she obediently sat with me and didn't make a sound. After William Deary entered the room, I soon heard the sheriff greet him. Good morning, sir. William Deary answered in a low, even tone. Good morning, sheriff. I am William Deary. I have some information I would like to share with you. Go on, Mr. Adair said. I was not surprised that Mr. Adair had involved himself in the investigation. I saw the shooting, he said. Mr. Murray's gun misfired, sir, the sheriff said. Ah, uh, yes, he replied. Did you see who attacked him? Mr. Adair asked. Yes, more than a hundred men assembled on the mountain. They surrounded Mr. Murray. There were many ribbon men among them, he said. Thank you, sir, the sheriff said with an irritated tone. Sheriff, I have brought a list of the men I saw. I recognized many of them, he said. I heard the shuffle of clothing. I knew that he must be producing an actual list of names. I was shocked. More than a hundred people would not leave only three sets of footprints, unless most of them could fly. Mr. Murray was found near a mountain, not on a mountain. Thank you, William, Mr. Adair said. Bring that here, please, the sheriff said. I heard footsteps and the unfolding of paper. Mr. Deary, did you write out the names on this list, he asked. William Derry hesitated before answering. Yes, Sheriff, I did, he said. Will you please read the names on this list, the Sheriff asked. I heard silence for several moments. I heard the paper unfold again. It is clear to me that you cannot read the names on this list, the Sheriff said. I am just not well, he said. I see, how unfortunate. I do hope you are feeling well soon. Good day, Mr. Deary, the sheriff replied. Archibald Campbell arrived much later in the day. Once he entered the drawing room, I ran to my spot near the door. Good day, sir, I heard the sheriff say. He did not disguise the irritation in his voice. Good day, sheriff. I am Mr. Archibald Campbell. I have been employed by Mr. Adair and living on his estate for many months, Mr. Campbell said. Do you have some information that you believe will be useful for our investigation, sir? He asked. Yes, I have heard one of the tenants boasting of having killed Mr. Murray, Mr. Campbell replied. You heard the murderer confess? He asked dryly. Yes, his name is Mr. Manus Rodden. Mr. Campbell said. Just then, I saw Dugald Rankin walking towards the drawing room. He entered the room. Good day, sir. I will speak with you in a moment, the sheriff began, before Mr. Adair interrupted him. Sheriff, these men work together. They are two of my best men. Mr. Dugald Rankin's testimony may be useful for Mr. Campbell's recollection, he said. I see. I suppose it would do little harm. Mr. Dugald Rankin, 
Mr. Archibald Campbell was just informing me that he had heard Mr. Manus Rodden boast of having killed Mr. Murray. Are you familiar with Mr. Manus Rodden? the sheriff asked. No, sir. I have heard some of the McSweeney's boast of killing Mr. Murray, Mr. Rankin replied. I heard a piece of paper unfolding. This was followed by a sigh that was so audible that I could hear it clearly from where I sat. You have brought a list of names, Mr. Rankin, the sheriff asked. Yes, sheriff, Mr. Rankin said. Please bring the list to me, the sheriff said. I heard footsteps and the unfolding of paper. I see that you use the same paper and ink as Mr. Deary. Are you two acquainted, the sheriff asked. Mr. Rankin did not answer. I heard his footsteps coming closer to the door. Good day, Mr. Rankin and Mr. Campbell. Thank you both, the sheriff said. Mr. Rankin and Mr. Campbell passed me. Shortly after they left, Mr. Grierson arrived. He entered the drawing room and Mr. Adair shouted at him. Rankin and Campbell have already given their testimonies. I would like to hear what this man has to say, the sheriff said. Sir, I am Mr. Adam Grierson. Shortly before the murder of Mr. James Murray, I came upon Mr. Dugald Rankin and Mrs. Murray. Mr. Rankin was taking liberties with Mrs. Murray. I saw it with my own eyes. It was not long after I saw them that Mr. Murray was killed, he said. Isn't Mr. Rankin a lodger of the Murrays? the sheriff asked. Yes, that is true, Mr. Adair replied. Thank you, Mr. Grierson, he said. I heard footsteps approaching. When Mr. Grierson walked out of the room, I hissed at him. He turned and looked at me oddly. I motioned for him to follow me. I quietly took Sally through the halls. He followed me. Only when I was far removed from the drawing room did I turn to Mr. Grierson. Mr. Grierson, I was listening, I said. I know, he said with a faint smile. I know that you told the truth, I said. He raised his eyebrows. Sean and I saw Mr. Rankin and Mrs. Murray when we were walking Mr. Adair's dogs. We looked at them through the window. We ran when we heard you, I said, blushing up to my ears. He nodded and smiled again. I stepped closer to Mr. Grierson. We ran to the small barn behind Mr. Murray's house. That is when we discovered Mr. Murray's treachery, I whispered. What did you discover, he asked. Several bloody sheepskins. Thank you, my dear, Mr. Gerson said. He turned around and quickly walked towards the front door. He left the house. I knew he was going to make certain that I was telling the truth. I rushed towards my room and was eager to tell Sean what had occurred. He was still in his bed. I found Mother sitting next to him. He was awake and sitting upright. Mother was slowly feeding him soup. He was very pale. I excitedly ran to him. Sally followed me. Take care, Aoife. Sean is still healing, Mother said. I gently kissed Sean on the cheek. He blushed crimson. Has mother told you? I asked. He looked at mother. 
I have not. I knew that you would want to tell him all of the details, she said. I told Sean of Mr. Murray's murder, all that I had heard while eavesdropping, and everything else that had happened. I glanced cautiously at Mother when I mentioned my eavesdropping, but she only smiled and raised an eyebrow. Sean listened and nuzzled Sally's head. Occasionally, he interjected questions, but for the most part, he quietly listened. Mother was silent until I had finished. A terrible deed was done to Mr. Murray. I know that he was not a good man, but he did not deserve to be murdered. Life is precious. When we cease to consider life precious, we cease to know what is life and what is death. When this occurs, it is just a matter of time before death is all, Mother whispered. Sean and I stared at her. It is not as simple as breathing and failing to breathe, she continued. If you do not value life, then you are as good as dead, Sean said. Yes, life is so precious. You should not take a life unless you believe that it will prevent life from becoming death and death from becoming all, she said. Sean smiled in agreement.